You're not the only one who appreciates full moons. Outdoors is better for footprints. It's a leaf pile, not a leaf stack. Ugly but decorative, the paradox of gourds. Science will never explain acorns. Leaves don't lay eggs. We consume microscopic organisms with no fear of reprisal. Rabbits have no words for autumn or anything else. Be wary of crab apple cider. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and this is a real episode of Out of All Doors. It's sad that it's come to this, that I actually have to assure you that this is a real episode of Out of All Doors, but sadly, I do have to assure you that this is a real episode of Out of All Doors, and so, again, sad as it is that I have to do this, I assure you, this is a real episode of Out of All Doors. And the main point I'm trying to convey is that the last episode you may have heard, although I pray that you didn't, was not a real episode of Out of All Doors, despite its many false claims to the contrary. Which, now that I think about it, that episode spent a lot of time claiming to be authentic, which is what I've been doing on this one so far, so maybe you'll think that all my assuring you that this is a real episode of Out of All Doors actually proves that it isn't. But that's where you'd be wrong, because in this instance, all my assurances that this is a real episode of Out of All Doors actually prove that it is real. See, as many of you know, we have a ghost problem here at the Out of All Doors podcast. The ghost has interfered with the show before, and that was obnoxious, but this time it really took the cake. I mean, it created an entire mini-episode all on its own, and then posted it on iTunes without my knowledge or consent, and now I can't seem to take it down. I've tried repeatedly to delete it, but it either just pops right back up again or just doesn't delete when I tell it to. So I guess the ghost is controlling that too, somehow. It's maddening. And we really didn't need yet another uh, entity impersonating my voice around here. Things are confusing enough as it is. But the point is that I want to apologize for that fake ghost episode, and I want to encourage you not to listen to it, because we didn't make it, that's not my actual voice, and it's just weird and bad, and the ghost stole our music too, but it's all chopped up and distorted. Just don't listen to it. I don't want to encourage this ghost at all. It's getting to the point now where something may have to be done about it. And I know several of you have suggested that I get a medium to try to talk to the ghost to convince it to stop ruining the podcast. But if there's one thing I dread, it's small talk with a medium before and after an attempt to speak with a malevolent trickster ghost. Can you imagine what the small talk with a person like that would be like? It must be awful. Just awful. If any of you know of any other ways of expunging a ghost from a podcast, please let me know. I'd prefer that the methods be cheap, easy, and painless for me. In fact, the ideal method would be free, require zero effort on my part, and actually feel pleasurable, although I'm fully willing to accept the fact that such a method of ridding a podcast of a ghost probably doesn't exist, although I think we can all agree that it should. It occurs to me that it would be nice if there were a way for me to indicate to you that this is really me and that this is a real episode of Out of All Doors so that you could be 100% sure. Like some sort of code word. Like, let's say the code word is, oh, I don't know, salmonella. So I would work the word salmonella into the introduction, and when you heard it, you'd be like, ah, that's really Adam, and this really is a real episode of Out of All Doors. But I don't know how to make it so you know the code word and the ghost doesn't. It's a real quandary. Ghost, if you're listening right now, please leave this episode alone, okay? And please don't make any more episodes of your own. If you want your own segment, well, maybe we can talk about that. But that should be a decision that we all make together. You shouldn't just interject whenever you feel like it. And you certainly shouldn't pretend to be me, okay? Please? Anyway, this is October, so this episode is mostly about fall stuff. And even though a lot of people associate ghosts with this time of year... I'd appreciate it if that could be the one thing about this time of year that we don't focus on anymore, because I feel like maybe the more attention we give it, the more attention it will try to get, and it'll just keep acting out, and that's really the last thing we need. You know what we never had a problem with on the old Out of All Doors blog? Ghosts. That blog was never haunted the whole time we were running it, not even one time. There wasn't one solitary instance of a ghost doing anything to undermine that blog. Man, that was a great blog. I don't even think ghosts can haunt blogs, unlike podcasts. Only password-stealing leeches can haunt blogs. And Out of All Doors got both. We just can't win, can we? Let's begin, shall we? 
fall is upon us, fellow poetry fans. And we all know what fall means. Change. Yes, all around us is change, and no one likes change, especially those trees that lose all their hair right before the coldest time of the year. But change is necessary. And I, just like the trees, am losing my metaphorical hair. I mean, I'm not losing my hair that allows me to be metaphorical. I mean, that metaphorically speaking, I'm losing my hair just like the trees because I am changing also. I am Cousin Ben. And this is your allotted poetry time for the month. All right, guys, we need to talk. Look, things are a little strained, and we should probably get this out in the open and clear the air a bit. Um, Last month's installment was a bit of a mess. I'll admit that the blame lies entirely on my shoulders. Cousin Adam and I have been having a disagreement about the poetry segment, and I didn't deal with it very well, and things got out of hand. I was a little childish in my response to the tensions, and I, I chose to write poems specifically to prove my point and to spite Adam. Now, I didn't do you, the poetry fan, or the poetry any favors. I mean, how is that serving the poetry? It's not. That's how. Look, I'm I'm not proud of those poems, and I'm not proud of my behavior. I was soiling the good name of nature poets the world over, and I am deeply regretful of those actions. So here is the change that I was speaking of. I am changing. I am losing my hair with the trees... And just like the young fawns, I am crawling from my chrysalis to take my first tentative steps with my new form out into the cool, crisp fall air. Without my extra sets of crustacean legs to support my new fawn legs and finding my way among the crunchy, noisy leaf carpet of the balding forest to set out to eat all the hedge apples I can in order to get my winter fat built up for the upcoming three-year hibernation cycle. So let's all be adults about this, shall we? Let's put this all behind us and just get on with enjoying the outdoors, the new season, through the beautiful lens of poetry, shall we? The Hunt The jays scream and strafe the grizzled cat as he slowly winds his way through the humans' yards and flower beds. He knows no property lines or territories, no courtesy or decorum. There is only the hunting fields, himself, and the prey. And now, this time, this fall time, is the time he lives for. The humans seem to like it too, but not for the same reasons. Fall is his time, and during his time, his hunt becomes all-consuming. The best kills, the best eating. It is to come in the next few weeks. And why? Because everything is harder. The stakes and the hunt. Sound travels differently in the cold air. Every step he takes makes more noise in the crackling leaves. The bright colors make his solid-colored fur stand out, and his movements must be timed perfectly. The season fights back at every turn. The cold, the lack of foliage for tree stalking. This, this is what he's been waiting for, training for. It's the Super Bowl of his life. That and the quest for the ultimate prize. The trophy he has spent a lifetime seeking. The greatest achievement a feral cat can achieve. To kill a wild bird while a human watchbird witnesses the kill. Few cats have ever achieved it, and they have all won themselves their rightful places in the tales of legend. To stalk and kill the bird, while the silly human with the long glasses sit and writes in his book about the birds. Not only does that cat win the praises of his fellow hunters, but all the watchbirds stand and scream and wave and cheer at him. That hunter is never to be forgotten. Infamy in the cat and the human world is all he desires and all he has quested for in his many years. That his name will live on after he sleeps for the last. He hasn't long left in the hunting fields, but he senses this might be the fall, his fall, that he wins the game, and then he can sleep. Thank you.
Jason, it's Halloween. I hope nothing spooky happens during our multiversal travels today. Casey, don't be silly. You should know that as a scientist, I don't believe in superstitions, folklore, or urban legends. Hey, look, Jason. There's this planet's Adam Drent. Hey, Adam! Hey, Casey. Who's your friend? Well, it's kind of a long story. Uh, You might not believe this, but... Adam of this Earth, look out behind you. It's some sort of... It's a zombie! Brain. Oh no! That zombie just took a big bite out of this world's Adam Drent! And now he's coming for us! Quick! Into the portal hopper! I can't believe that just happened. Surprisingly, I can. I know I said I don't buy into Ghost and Goblin stories, but now that I think of it, Within the multiverse, science would allow for each hypothetical monster or ghoul, fictitious as they may be on your world, to be a reality on another. Of course. Well, it's unfortunate for that world's Adam Drent. At least we made it out alive. Casey, this fellow looks familiar. Excuse me, sir. My name is Eldon Langley. Eldon? What? Jason, he's another contributor to the Out of All Doors podcast. And he's about to be attacked by a vampire. Eldon, look out behind you! Blah. We're getting out of here. What are the odds? It's uncanny. Hey, there's this world's Cousin Ben. Cousin Ben. Or maybe even Poet Ben, if you must. Either way, it won't matter for long. There's a werewolf about to pounce on him. That werewolf is eating Cousin Ben! Is no one safe? We must be extra precautious, Casey. It seems something about today being Halloween is forcing all of our interdimensional hops to land us in realities swarming with monsters and ghoulies. There's one now. It's Harrison Blum. I'd hardly call Harrison a monster, Casey. Well, he is a murderer. He hit a guy with a car and just took off 20 years ago in Canada. Look it up. Well, let's just hope he's not a murderer on this earth. Harrison, something horrible is happening. Monstrous villains are killing off all of the Out of All Doors contributors. I first suspected the neighbor boy, as he's been skulking near the municipal electrical box behind the complex. It's not the neighbor boy, Harrison. We're talking real vampires and werewolves and... And ghosts Behind you, Harrison! It's too late. He's scared this reality's Harrison to death. Let's get out of here. We need to find a safe reality to hide out in until Halloween is over, Casey. There's the joke guy, Cousin Brent. Brent! Listen, we've been traveling throughout the multiverse, and everywhere we go, members of the Out of All Doors family are being killed off. We think you might be next. We need to do everything in our power to get you to safety. Thanks, Adam. Oh, actually, I see why you would think I was Adam. We do sound exactly the same, but I'm actually Jason, a fictitious character Casey here created. But in the reality I come from, I'm quite real. You see, in the multitude of infinities we call the multiverse... A witch threw Brent in a boiling cauldron while you were rattling off your backstory. And here she comes on her broom! Hey, it's this reality's version of the saint. This might seem a bit unsettling, but trust me, okay? Let me guess, you're being chased by some sort of monster. Oh, good lord, a tiny alien-type creature just burst out of his chest! (laughs) 
Cayman bird, look out, it's a demon. I thought you were a hermit. <laughs> oh no, but it wasn't a hermit. It was a demon, and it sucked Cayman into its hell dimension. We'd better be getting to another dimension ourselves then. Hey, there's that guy who does the five people you'll meet pieces. Dying instantaneously. And a living ventriloquist dummy has stabbed him in the heart. Wow, it's Squall. He hasn't been on an episode in nearly a year. Squall, we have reason to believe that some sort of devious creature may attempt to kill you any moment now. Trust us, we're kinda experts on this. Be an expert in any field, you have to have multiple years of study in that field, such as fishing, which doesn't apply to me. Whatever, Squall, you figure it out on your own. Hey, he looks familiar. Hey, excuse me, sir, what's your name? Matt Martin. Well, Matt Martin, that mummy behind you is about to kill you. But not us. Look, it's this reality's Adam Drent and Jason together. And it looks like they're just about to sing a song. Apply, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up. Darn you creature from the Black Lagoon! forgetting who could be next me lil dollop lil dollop something terrible is happening you must protect yourself from the creatures of the night what is how can you be so cavalier about this little dollop because i myself am a creature of the night two three four saucy 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 i wanna get saucy Saucy, 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 saucy Creature of the night Creature of the night Creature of the night Creature of the night We enter a glowing circle that appears in the air, radiating heat and crackling with energy. Upon passing through it, we travel through time and space across dimensional divides, and we find ourselves in a realm that defies description in all ways except one. There are many, many bats here. We have entered the Battery. Bats never walk on stilts, and why should they? Their ability to fly renders stilts obsolete. A bat on stilts wouldn't make you sit up and say, wow. It would make you sit up and say, why? And that's not what bats are going for, ever. You may occasionally hear people say there's more than one way to skin a cat. But one thing you'll never hear people say is there's more than one way to skin a bat. And that's because there isn't more than one way to skin a bat. In fact, there is exactly one way and one way only to skin a bat, and that is with explicit permission from the bat. I'm sometimes asked, what's the big deal about bats? It's a question that gives questions a bad name. It makes you question the validity of the very concept of questions. It's a question that causes a trapdoor to spring spontaneously into existence beneath the questioner's feet, falling open and dumping them into a shallow, steaming river. 
A bat ate a bug full of poison and its stomach became upset, understandably. But it knew a sort of home remedy, a certain kind of moss that grows on a certain kind of stump with roots sunk deep into a certain type of soil. But that moss, stump, and soil happened to be hundreds of miles away and the bat didn't feel well enough to fly that far. So the bat went with the second best remedy, which was a plant that grew locally in plentiful quantities and which, when consumed, made puking pleasurable. There was once a cave without any bats in it. Instead, it had bears, old shopping carts, cave fish, and the occasional no bats please sign bolted to the rock walls. But the bats weren't absent because of the signs. The bats didn't want to be in that cave anyway, and that embarrassed its inhabitants. So they had the signs made and hung them up so it looked like the lack of bats was their decision and not the bats' decision. Were they believed? It's hard to say, there's always some doofus willing to believe something ridiculous. What if you adopted twin bats and raised them like your own children? Not sending them to school and dressing them in human child clothes, but with that amount of love and concern and pride. And then you put them in your will and you died, and the lawyers handling your estate tried to give all your stuff to the bats, but they had zero interest, literally zero interest, and all your stuff just fell into disrepair or got stolen or misplaced, and your impressive lifetime accumulation of wealth was reduced to nothing in a single generation. Would you feel a little foolish from beyond the grave? I once asked my friend to guess what animal I was thinking of. To help him out, I casually hinted at the fact that the animal I was thinking of was a mammal capable of flight, often nocturnal, and capable of hunting winged insects with echolocation. He guessed that the animal I was thinking of was a bat, which was correct, but the way he said it sounded wrong, so I said, no, you're wrong. Incredulous, he asked what other animal had all of the traits I had just described. A bat, I said, and the way I said it sounded so, so correct. It sounded like the most correct guess ever guessed, and so it was, utterly correct, and I won the game. And so, you want to have real bats in the haunted house you're making in order to raise funds for a wonderful charity that helps meet the needs of the needy. Everything else will be fake except for the bats. The cobwebs will be fake, the severed limbs will be fake, the witches and whatever they appear to be brewing in their cauldrons will be fake. But the bats will be real bats, and you're very proud of that. You're making that the big headline on your flyer. It reads, Charity Haunted House with Real Bats. But what you apparently don't realize is that those bats are almost certainly going to create dummies of themselves and skip town the first chance they get. So your haunted house is going to have fake bats created by real bats, which is still cooler than fake bats created by humans, but your flyer is going to be a lie, and you may get sued, and that's not going to help meet the needs of the needy, no way. In the 40s, a traveling salesman had been trying to sell vacuum cleaners with little success. Then one day a thought struck him. What if he tried to sell bats instead? So that's what he tried to do. And the very first time he tried to sell the bats, the bats sold him instead, and they used the money as something to drop into a swamp, if you can really call that using it. And what happened to the salesman? Well, he spent the rest of his days vacuuming for the housewife who had purchased him from the bats. Sure, every once in a while she'd let him stop vacuuming so she could go listen to a radio program, but as soon as her program was done, she'd have the salesman right back on that vacuum. It was a bad life. Are you going to dress up as a bat for Halloween? Well, I advise you to remember that if you really were a bat, you'd be the biggest bat of all time. No bats are even close to your size and never have been. I'm not trying to rain on your parade, but part of having a good costume is being the right size. And if you're dressed as a bat, well, guess what? You're the wrong size. And there's no way you can get down to the right size by Halloween. My only suggestion is that you change your costume idea to person dressed as a bat of inaccurate proportions. Somehow, by some miracle, we find our way back to the portal. But is this, in fact, the portal by which we entered this dimension? Or will it only lead us farther from our home dimension? So far, in fact, that we may never return to our home dimension. There's no way to know. None of us are interdimensional portal experts, that's for sure. Although it's pretty clear that this is how interdimensional portals actually work. That is, they appear in the air seemingly on their own and cannot be controlled by man-made technology, not even in theory. But another thing that's for sure is that, as much as we love bats, we can't stay here. It's just too much. It's impossible to explain, really, but it's sort of like everything is bats, which makes bats not very special, which is the saddest thing we can think of. So we join hands, close our eyes, and plunge through the portal. 
we leave the battery. Listeners and Eleanor. I apologize for not contributing these last couple of months, but my absence was unavoidable. I've been traveling quite a bit and haven't had much time to gather my thoughts. Today is a different story, however. In fact, I'm recording this segment on location in Fitzroy Provincial Park, just outside of Ottawa, Ontario. The park, known for its century-old white pine forest, is located at the junction of the Carp and Ottawa Rivers. The fishing, I'm told, is incredible, and the air smells like that one Febreze that doesn't make me queasy. Just this morning, I spotted a dusky flycatcher, a rare sight in these parts, since they usually migrate to Arizona or Mexico this time of year. It's a practice more humans should adopt, I think. I wonder how long it might take me if, say, I just started walking right now, traversing back roads and forest paths, sleeping during the day maybe, who knows. I suppose it's too late anyhow. The dusky flycatcher belongs to the Empidonax genus of birds, a collection of species notoriously difficult to differentiate. Each flycatcher looks like all the other flycatchers. How nice would that be? Completely anonymous hidden in plain sight, comforted by that invisibility, if only for one long transnational walk. I'm not exactly sure what time I'm supposed to be back in court, but I hope the jurors at least take the day, so I can stay out here and enjoy what is likely one of our last good fall afternoons. Or if they want to deliberate forever, that's fine too. I can live here in the trees, shielded from the world, sleeping on a bed of pine needles and subsisting on the fish parts bears have tossed away. One minute, you're pulling your life back together, finding a hobby, reconnecting with your estranged brother, and the next you're facing charges in Canada for a 20-year-old vehicular manslaughter case. I've talked about my desire to fly, I think. I'm sure I have. I can't think of a time I've ever wanted to fly more than I do right now. I refrained from recording any segments on the off chance I might unintentionally incriminate myself, but this may be the last time I speak with all of you, so here it goes. All my cards are on the table. Contrary to what you may have heard on this podcast, and contrary to what the prosecution and my brother Don have said in court, I did not commit this crime. I don't necessarily have proof, and my lawyer, one of Don's old fishing buddies, doesn't seem to believe I'm incapable of a hit-and-run. But here's the long and the short of it. In 1994, Don and I drove north from Syracuse, where he attended law school, to our family lake house, a fishing shack, really, in North Bay. Our father had passed away in late September after slipping on some wet leaves, so the house belonged to us. Now, our father was not a kind man, and I'm ashamed to say his death was met with a great deal of relief. In truth, I was unburdened, finally able to let go of whatever drove me to Iowa years earlier. We took 81 into Canada, toward Ottawa, then turned on to 7, heading west to North Bay. The landscape unfolded before us, a swath of amber and gold, a day not unlike today. I started asking about the cabin, what were the sleeping arrangements, were birds still nesting in the chimney, but Don wasn't very responsive. I prodded about what sort of fish we might catch, and if we had an exit strategy, should a bear break down the cabin door. But that only seemed to further rile Don. He rather angrily told me not to worry about the cabin, but then I remembered aloud that I hadn't packed sheets or a pillow. Don shouted, punched the steering wheel, and said, We're burning it to the ground, Harrison. We're burning everything. He pulled over so I could vomit on account of the shock, and when I took a step from the Buick, he drove off. I waited for an hour in that spot, hoping he might return for me, but he never did. I walked 12 miles to the nearest gas station, caught a ride to the bus depot, and made my way back to the States. I didn't speak to Don again for three years. 
I never even called to ask about the cabin. I assume his court testimony is accurate, all except for the driver of the car. According to Don, I, by which I mean he, sped off into the Canadian dusk where, on a foggy bend, the Buick made contact with what he thought was a young elk. Whether he stopped to see if he hit an elk or an elderly man out for a twilight jog, I couldn't say. What I can say, however, is that he kept on driving all the way to North Bay, where he backed our father's Buick slowly into the dark water. Unfortunately, my lawyer can't, or won't, attempt to prove any of this. He says it's a matter of he says he says. And besides, who would turn in his own brother for an accident on the way to what was supposed to be a crime of passion? So here I am, under the shade of a white pine, talking not to a jury, but to all of you. If this is, in fact, my last segment, let me say it's been a pleasure. I've truly enjoyed my time with each and every one of you. Please tell Eleanor I say hello, and that it wasn't me, it was Don. You can tell her that too. Sincerely, Harrison. And now a new segment, Outfit of a Day, with the Ghost Bat Queen. The outfit of the day is us, in a cemetery, under an aspen in late October, kneeling on small yellow leaves as we make rubbings of tombstones, my bare knees imprinted with the shapes of blades of grass, your jeans damp from the ground, sensing movement in our peripherals, turning to watch a horse burrow into its den on the outskirts of the graveyard, and you whisper that isn't it early in the season for that horse to start hibernating, and I answer that no, most horses are underground by now. New and approved Cousin Ben back again to help you ring in the new season with lots and lots of change. Lots. So you know about fall, do you? You know all about the colorful leaves and the Halloween and the cold days and the pumpkin spice and the football. Oh, well then, since you're such a fall expert and you can tell us all about the season, why don't you go ahead and tell us the rest? Oh, yeah, I... Mm-hmm. I think I covered all of your curriculum in that intro right there, bro. What can you tell me about what fall does to the people, huh? Why don't you tell us about the changes on our souls that fall affects? What's that? I can't hear you. Speak up. Oh, oh, you can't? Oh, well, don't worry. Sit back and let me give you some help. M for D. U. A surprised and nervous small buck with only a few points and big black eyes filled with curious excitement and furious terror. Me, middle-aged white male in a torn-up black hoodie, a drinking straw in my mouth, a two-dollar blue stocking cap perched precariously on my head, and a look of absolute and meticulously practiced indifference upon my face. Where? The bank of the river where I was throwing a dead limb over into the trash pile in order to clean up the mess that the fall has begun to bring upon my yard. Why? I thought we had something, you and I. I'm not sure what it was, but it certainly was electric. While listening to the leaves crash down upon their fallen comrades, and the river murmuring over the rocks, our breaths steaming in the sharp air, my nose stinging, and my eyes watering a little from that surprise slap that October gave me. Nobody locks eyes for that long and then forgets as soon as they break the trance. At least I don't. I hope you are the type of dude who doesn't either. I hope you didn't take my offer to hang out with some beers in the garage while we watched the game as anything weird. I said no funny business and I meant it. But something about the way you left makes me think that you might have taken it wrong. The garage is a lot more lonely now that I have to keep the door closed, and I can't see the people walking by or the squirrels playing. 
that cold, stale concrete air really cuts through the flannel. Hoping we can hook up next week for the Packers game. I'll keep the fridge stocked, bro. This month, Gentleman's Mills is very excited to bring you another year of our hit Halloween costumes. Last year, we costumed you better than anyone else, and this year, we intend to do the same. Unfortunately, by the time you're hearing this, you'll probably have to pay for our overnight shipping, but we think you'll agree that it's all worth it once you hear how excellent these costumes are. Here they come. Number one, perfunctory alligator. It's a green sheet of construction paper taped to the stomach with a very small tail that attaches to most undershorts. Number two, churlish dervish. A series of hula hoops worn around the body to resemble a tornado with built-in speakers that demean partygoers within earshot. Number three, unsexy librarian. This costume is the closest you'll ever come to resembling a real librarian. Number four, ponching bag. This costume resembles an especially bottom-heavy punching bag that gathers at its base into a big belly-shaped blob. Let's get ponching! Number five, Total Recall Costume Edition. It's you, as Total Recall, the DVD box, not any of the characters. Number six, Pregnant Grape. It's a grape costume. You can't tell it's pregnant. Number seven, a real Gentleman's Mills gentleman. This is the treat of all Gentleman's Mills costumes. One of the Gentleman's Mills co-founders comes into your house on Halloween night dressed in a costume as one of your best friends, effortlessly blending in at your big Halloween costume party. After a certain amount of time, the Gentleman secretly subdues you in order to dress you in a secret costume of the Gentleman's choosing that you'll wear for the rest of the night. Now who's the real Gentleman? Fur, get me not. Gentlemen's Mills bought the rights to this unsuccessful PETA campaign and have rebranded it as a fur coat made of the finest mink pelts. Number 9. Koi Pond, COI. This costume consists of a kiddie pool with leg holes in it, held onto the wearer's shoulders by suspenders. The pool is filled with warm pond water, some of which will escape through the leg holes. Despite the noisy sloshing and wet mess the wearer creates as he wears this costume, he maintains an air of crippling shyness. Our number 10, Dracula. This famous blood-sucking vampire reimagined as a famous blood-sucking vampire wearing sunglasses. Number 11, you but worse. This is a costume of yourself, but with several of your better traits minimized. Number 12, Taco. A giant taco costume, but you're allowed to speak while wearing it. Number 13, Veinman. Crafted by the finest Hollywood horror technicians, these synthetic, real-looking veins can be pasted to your arms, hands, and neck to make you look like an overly veiny person. Number 14, Raccoon. The winner, somehow, of Gentleman's Mill's first annual yearly anniversary Halloween spook, spectacular costume design bonanza, was this unfortunate entry from Racine, Wisconsin's own Drew Miller. Listen, it's a raccoon costume with a pair of breasts on it, that's it. Gentleman's Mills can only endorse the costume with extreme reluctance, but when the votes were tallied, Drew's costume idea won, indeed, with a total of two votes, with a six-way tie at second place with one vote apiece and a ten-way tie at third place with zero votes apiece. Gentleman's Mills, despite its disdain for this costume, nevertheless honored the contest rules and mass-produced this monstrosity, which is available for purchase for $39.99. Number 15, Murder Man. This classic Halloween character created by Gentleman's Mills specifically for this Halloween season kills people. Yes, kills them, but it's only pretend he's a fictional character and he also has funny buck teeth. Number 16, Big Nose. This mask makes the rest of your facial features look smaller so that your real nose looks very big in comparison. Number 17, Beardless Mountain Man. Defy convention with this mountain man costume that pointedly does not include a beard of any kind. Number 18, beardless mountain man beard of cowardice. Cave in to the demands of convention and use this mountain man beard as an accessory to pair with the Gentleman's Mills beardless mountain man costume, thereby ensuring that you in costume will be as forgettable as you are when you're not in costume. Number 19, beardless mountain man beard of cowardice redeemer. Weave this ornate ribbon into your beardless mountain man beard of cowardice just like your conventional mountain man wouldn't. Number 20, teeth sharpener. Make any costume scarier by sharpening your real teeth. Dentists despise this product, so you know it works. Number 21, folding chair. A lot of commitment and discomfort for relatively little payoff, but no one will be able to deny that you look like a metal folding chair. And number 22, choking victim. Pray to God that you don't actually choke on something while you're wearing this costume.
I've told you before about the Oorang Indians, the honest-to-God NFL football team that called LaRue home for two seasons in the 1920s. The Indians were a novelty team which existed for the sole purpose of advertising at the halftime shows, the Airedale Terriers from team owner Walter Lingo's dog kennel. The team was composed entirely of Native Americans and featured, as its player coach and only real draw, two-time Olympic gold medalist Jim Thorpe. Most residents of LaRue labor under the assumption that the players on the team were all members of the Oorangs, an Indian tribe that had once lived in the Scioto Valley, but which left the area sometime in the mid-1800s. None of this is true. The players on the Oorang Indians were from various tribes, their only real connection to one another being that most had attended the Carlisle Indian School with Thorpe in Pennsylvania. In fact, none of the players were Oorangs, this owing primarily to the fact that the tribe never existed. Oorang was the name of Lingo's kennel, not of an Indian tribe. That the people of LaRue know little about Native American history isn't entirely their fault. In 1965, the Ohio Board of Education made it mandatory that all public school sixth-grade curricula include a unit called The Story of the Red Man, and they issued to each school a 50-page textbook of the same name. However, the first 40 pages of this book recount, inaccurately, the story of the first Thanksgiving, and the last ten explain, in superfluous detail, how to make your own tomahawk out of empty pop cans and toilet paper tubes. The annual sixth-grade engine fight, which used to cap off the Native American History Unit, was discontinued in 1987 when Jim Westcott accidentally cut the ear off the class guinea pig. But the books are still used today. A few years ago, in an effort to supplement the material in the story of the Red Man, Mrs. Lambert assigned to her sixth graders a research project on the Trail of Tears. She encouraged the students to solicit help from their parents, and sent them home with a letter identifying what the project was about and explaining how one goes about checking out books from the library. The parents, having gone to LaRue Elementary themselves, had never heard of the Trail of Tears before, and upon reading about it for the first time, they were crushed. The thought that their ancestors had, in all probability, similarly mistreated the ancestors of Jim Thorpe, the most famous and most beloved LaRueian in history, was more than their collective conscience can bear. It was clear to everyone that some gesture of goodwill to the Urangs was needed. And after three weeks of heated discussion at Cooney's, the Lions Club called a special session to decide on a course of action. As president of the Lions, Dan White had the floor first at the meeting. On the internet, he said, rising from the lawn chair at the head of the picnic table on Matt Swinton's back porch, it says that in 1921, Walter Lingo invited Jim Thorpe to come to LaRue for a possum hunt, and that was where he first proposed the idea of the Urang football team. Now, I don't claim to know much about Indian culture, but that must have been pretty well received, because Jim Thorpe said yes after all. Now, the woods behind my barn is full of possums, so why don't we do this? Why don't we invite all the remaining Urang Indians we can find out to my property, and we'll all go possum hunting together. And while we're out there, we'll tell them how sorry we are about how our ancestors treated them and how much we appreciate Jim Thorpe and all the other Indians and all the great things they did for our town. My dad seconded the motion, and it carried unanimously. Unsurprisingly, despite scouring the internet and even meeting with the curator of the Marion County Historical Society, the Lions were unable to locate any surviving members of the Urang tribe. This, as you can imagine, only deepened their sense of guilt. Eventually, though, Dan managed to get in touch with a man from Kenton who was a quarter Sioux, and he reluctantly agreed that he and a few of his relatives would participate. That, the Lions decided, was probably good enough, and the hunt was scheduled for the following Saturday morning. The night of the Thursday before, my dad got a call from Dan. Jim, Dan shouted into the phone, and Dad could already tell what the problem was. Dan's voice was all but drowned out by barking and howling in the background. Dad sighed. Those damn dogs, he said. They've never gone east or Route 37 before. Hell of a time to do it now. Those damn dogs, of course, were the mongrel horde, the uncountable pack of corndogs' lawless half-brothers that had been roaming Montgomery Township for the past four years. Dad paused. It's late, he said. 
I'll call the Indians in the morning and tell them it's off. He hung up, and as he turned to go back to bed, he noticed Corndog eagerly scratching at the front door. You want out, boy? he asked, and opened it. Corndog bolted out into the snow and headed south, towards the Benson's house. Corndog arrived at the Benson's to find Pseudo-Dionysus lying on the floor, panting and shivering, wrapped in the down comforter from Mr. and Mrs. Benson's bed. An episode of Accent Wall Emergencies was playing, muted on the TV in front of him. In the language of grunts and gestures that only dogs can understand, Corndog pleaded with Pseudo-Dionysus. You have to call them back, he said. After all, they're of no use to you on the other side of the big road, and if they don't come home now, they might never. Do it, and I promise I'll never bother you again. You can have them do whatever you want. Pseudo-Dionysus gave no response, not even a turn of his head from the TV. Corndog waited undeterred for more than an hour. At last, the show gave way to a late-night infomercial, and for the first time in Corndog's life, his father addressed him. Why do you think the Horde is useful to me, he asked. I needed nothing from them when they were here, and I'll lack nothing when they're gone. I didn't sire the Horde because it benefited me. I didn't do it because I thought I should. I didn't even do it because I wanted to. I'm a dog, and dogs, when they can, make more dogs. Those puppies survive, or they don't, and they stay home, or they don't, and eventually, when they can, they make more dogs. That's what my father did, and what his father did, and, I'll remind you, it's what your father did. Corndog was beleaguered. But what about the first dog, he entreated. Didn't someone make him, and wasn't he useful to them? Pseudo-Dionysus looked up. First dog, he snarled. Nonsense. There's always been dogs, forever, just like there's always been chipmunks and trees and people. And they've always just done what dogs and chipmunks and trees and people do, because that's what they are. Corndog lay down on the carpet and thought. But, just as he was about to formulate his reply, I walked in through the sliding glass door. It was getting late and the snow was accumulating, so Dad had sent me next door to pick Corndog up before it got too dangerous to drive home. My car was running in the Benson's driveway. Corndog, I said. Come on, boy, in the car. But he stayed put. Surprised by his disobedience, I said more sternly, Corndog, come! When again he did nothing, I reached for his collar to pull him out into the car. But as I grabbed it, he snapped at me, sinking his teeth into my hand. Corndog, I gasped, pulling my arm back towards my chest. Bad dog! Corndog reeled back his eyes darting back and forth between my face and that of Pseudo-Dionysus. Finding welcome in neither, he pushed past me and darted through the still half-open sliding door. He ran out into the field towards the woods. Corndog! I yelled after him into the snow, but he was gone. I shuffled back to my car and started driving home. In the rearview mirror as I left, I saw Pseudo-Dionysus emerge from the Benson's back door and out into the yard. He turned to the east and released into the night an unremitting ball that was louder than I thought possible from any dog, let alone a lab. Two miles away, the sound echoed off the barns at Dan White's property. Dogs emerged from the barn, then from the garage, from under Dan's truck. Hundreds stood in the field, shaking the snow from their coats. One by one, they dispersed into the woods. Welcome. I am the new, improved, and chosen Cousin Ben. I am here for the calling and the culling. The time has come for me to share with you the purpose. Dim the lights, light the incense, and prepare yourself, for you are all part of this as well. And there came a time when the son of Dam strode forth among his fellow man, and lo, he perceived that he had within him a superior eye for seeing and a superior ear for hearing. And he took his misshapen and cretinish followings and spit unto them. Behold, 
fellow men, they are surely not to me. See how they are so much less cool than I? What they say is great, is clearly not. Therefore, we must put a fire into the boiler of the machine and drive its hulking mass of iron and smoke into their midst and stop them from wounding our eyes and ears with the uncoolness of all their cool. And so it came to pass that the son of Dam and his hunched-backed and deformed familiars descended upon us all and took from us that gift of beauty that nature had gifted us since the dawn of the first dawn. Then son of Dam, being filled with the demon rage, waved the hammer of the pod and the sickle of the cast above our heads and lorded it over all morning noon and night and no rest was to be had by any man nor any woman but the son of dam had an old wound that vexed him sorely and late one harvest night the wound bled blood upon the ground and lo the earth raised up from that cursed puddle a champion a savior to all of its children and the beast that shared the blood of the son of Dam lifted his hands high, and looking up to the heavens and down to the hells, he called long calls of pain and petition. And when the blood beast was done, he sat back and waited. Like far, far away thunder, or a stock car spring nationals preparing to start the prelims, over distant hills came a sound, the sound of vengeance. And the waters came, and the vengeance flowed. All the levees could not contain the roiling justice that churned and sought for the son of Dam. And the earth's dead gave up their underground sleeping bags and floated forth to lend their ivory swords to the attack. The waters sat atop the war horse and pointed the saber that signaled the charge of the legions of the sharp bone soldiers. They stormed the stronghold of the son of Dam and his followers, and being caught unawares in the wakefulness of the pajama time, they were all swept away and taken out to the boulder fields, and there they were dashed upon the rocks until dead, and skewered with the bone spears of the angry dead as well. And lo, the tyranny died that very day on the rocks with the son of Dam, and all who were not close-minded rejoiced and feasted and danced among the colorful leaf carpet of the fall time. Happy fall, everyone. As some of you may recall, Out of All Doors is endlessly fascinated by the intricacies of hermit culture, and as such, we've done several segments on hermits in the past. Today, calling in from deep in the field, from an undisclosed location, is intrepid young hermit correspondent Cayman Bird. Cayman, it's been a while since you were on Out of All Doors, hasn't it? Yes, it has, Adam. I think the last time was back in, what, March? Anyways, for the record, I'm sorry I haven't, I haven't been able to get more sent in. I've been interviewing lots of hermits, but I just haven't been sure whether they're up to whether or not they're too generic for the podcast or not. Well, you know, I've been fine with you not sending anything in. Um, you know, we we are happy to take it as it comes, but I don't think you've ever mentioned them being too generic. What what do you mean by that? I don't I don't quite follow. Well, now that I think about it, my standards may be a bit warped on generic about permit discussions. After all, you had me married before him on the old blog, and... Uh, oh! Do you ever tell your listeners about them? Um, I'm sure I've mentioned that we were the foremost gathering spot for hermits on the internet in our heyday, but I don't think I've ever gone into specific detail about the forums and what those were like. Oh, they were ridiculous. 
almost every week there's some nonsensical argument going on about how to make fish traps or how to interpret hobo signs. And usually, neither side had any clue what they were talking about. Remember those days? <laughs> yeah. Or how about those weird discussions about that that bizarre flag football thing, that 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 game? I, I, I never even really fully understood what they were talking about. Oh, yeah. that I always thought that was King of the Hill, but, yeah, how could I forget that? They all live alone. Why would they want to know how to play a team sport? Oh, find me later. I should see if those old transcript files are still on Ben's computer. I was waiting to see if I could find anything related to what I'm working on now. So speaking of what you're working on now, what... what... Oh, yeah. Well, to be honest, I don't have much yet. It's just been more of a sneaking suspicion than anything. But I just get the feeling I might be onto something big, which is far-fetched considering it's a bunch of hermits, but there's just a lot of little things I've been noticing, like how they all get uncomfortable when I ask about pine trees or how they seem almost militant about how much they hate hobos. Why would hermits hate homeless people? Not, Not homeless people, hobos. I've been angrily informed many, many times that they're not the same thing. And, yeah, it's just ridiculous. But I'll have to call you back sometimes because I honestly have no clue if this will pan out to be anything other than just general hermit weirdness. All right, well, it sounds like there's at least a chance that you're onto something bigger. So if that turns out to be the case, we will look forward to hearing all about it as the you know story develops, as they say. Anyway, it was, it was good to hear from you, and we're pulling for you and praying for you while you're out there in the field. Uh, I know the conditions can be pretty rough sometimes. So uh, just, you know, stay safe and uh, don't ruffle any of the wrong feathers. I mean... Hermits, if we know anything about them, it's that they're they're unpredictable. So uh, bye for now, Cayman. Bye. Close your eyes, lie down, and relax. It's the same deal as always without any differences. Someday I might just come up with an acronym like CYE, comma, LD, comma, R which of course stands for close your eyes, lie down, and relax. In this example, which is not the finished product, I opted not to give the word AND a letter, which I think is pretty standard acronym practice. But I did decide to include the commas, including the notorious Oxford comma for all my quote-unquote self-described grammar nerds out there who are always getting all up in arms about the absence of commas in acronyms, especially Oxford commas. So with that settled, and with your eyes closed, your body lying down, and your entire being wrapped in the tightening grip of extreme relaxation, you find yourself in a wagon full of hay. The wagon is being pulled down a picturesque dirt road by an unmanned tractor. That is, the tractor seems to be driving itself. Lining the road are trees with leaves of many colors, many fall colors. You're the only person in the wagon full of hay. Some hay has gotten into your pants, and it isn't comfortable. And it's at this moment that you realize that you are on a hayride, one of the funnest things there is, as determined by a jury of a hayride's peers. And yes, there was an actual trial to determine if a hayride is one of the funnest things there is. So if you don't feel like you're actually having fun on this hayride, well, I'm afraid that's on you, my friend. But let's just say you are having fun. The ride is bumpy, the ride is slow, you're sitting in hay, you know, fun. But where is the hayride taking you? You'd bet a thousand dollars it's taking you to a pumpkin patch. A man appears along the side of the road and jogs along next to the wagon as if waiting for you to say something. Excuse me, sir, you say. Would you like to bet me a thousand dollars that this hayride is taking me to a pumpkin patch? It's a deal, says the man, and you reach out of the wagon to shake his hand, bits of hay clinging to your jacket sleeve. As soon as you shake his hand, the man veers off the road and into the trees. You're a little concerned that once you get to the pumpkin patch and win the bet, you might have trouble finding the guy again so you can collect the thousand dollars he'll owe you. You're going to be pretty irritated if you never get your money, because you can't find the guy because he's hiding in the autumn woods. At that moment, you pass a wooden signpost at the side of the road. It has two arrows on it. 
One of the arrows is pointed behind you in the direction you are traveling away from, and that arrow is labeled Pumpkin Patch. The other arrow is pointed in the direction you are traveling, and that arrow is labeled Junior Pumpkin Patch. You break into a cold sweat. A Junior Pumpkin Patch is still a Pumpkin Patch, right? You're still going to win the bet, right? Even if you go to the Junior Pumpkin Patch instead of the regular one? Something about that guy, the way he jogged into the woods, makes you think he's going to try to stick you on the technicality. Like he's going to point out that if the signpost felt the need to differentiate between a pumpkin patch and a junior pumpkin patch, then they must not be the same thing. You fully intend to point out to the man that the junior pumpkin patch is still a pumpkin patch, it's just a more specific variety of pumpkin patch. Just like a children's zoo is still a zoo. But that guy's got a thousand reasons not to concede you that point. Or, depending on how you look at it, he's got a hundred thousand reasons if you consider each cent of the thousand dollars a reason instead of each dollar. But you have to win this bet, however much money you have in real life is irrelevant, because here in the visualization exercise on this hayride, you've only got fifty bucks, and you're going to spend some of that on a pumpkin, obviously. You're not just going to go to a pumpkin patch, junior or otherwise, and not spend any money. That would be insane. Alright, how are you going to solve this? Well, you could try to hide from the guy you made the bet with, just like you worried he was going to try to hide from you. But he found you with ease before, although that may have been because you were in the open on the road on a slow, noisy hayride. Maybe if you abandon the wagon and the trackman strike out on foot, he won't be able to track you, and you can just hide until I tell you to open your eyes and go back to your real life and take the piece of Out of All Doors with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. But then again, maybe he will be able to track you. These characters who show up in visualization exercises aren't governed by the normal laws of probability and physics and nature and stuff. And the last thing you want is that guy cornering you in the woods, way off of the road and demanding his money. Maybe jumping off the wagon will negate the bet since the hayride won't have taken you anywhere. But no, you'll still lose because you bet him that it would take you to a pumpkin patch. So even if it takes you nowhere, you still lose because nowhere is not a pumpkin patch. It's even less of a pumpkin patch than a junior pumpkin patch is. But you've got one more idea. One idea that could solve everything. As the wagon continues to bump along the rutted dirt road, you hop out of it and then run up alongside the tractor, climbing on and situating yourself in the tractor seat. You're no expert at tractor driving, but the road is nice and wide and it seems like you should just be able to apply the brakes and crank the wheel to perform a U-turn and get the tractor headed in the direction of the regular pumpkin patch. You press the brakes, but nothing happens. Well, the tractor isn't moving very fast. Maybe you can execute the U-turn at the current speed. You grasp the wheel with both hands and try to turn it. It doesn't budge. You try harder, but it still doesn't budge. You grip the wheel as hard as you can, and mustering all of your strength, you crank the wheel as hard as you can to the left, and it turns. But not enough to perform a U-turn, only enough to go off the road and crash into a tree. Some thin gray smoke starts coming out of the tractor's engine. You look back at the wagon, and the hay is in complete disarray. And just then, the man you made the bet with comes strolling up the road, whistling casually like he just happened to show up right now. Wow, he says. Looks like the tractor didn't take you to a pumpkin patch after all. Looks like you lost the bet. You're going to have to pay me a thousand. And now, open your eyes. Come back to your real life. But as you do, take the piece of Out of All Doors with you this month, even when you're inside of one Thank you for listening to the 14th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, J.J. Evans, Casey By, Ben Bird, Steve Tartaglioni, Greg Lynch, Cayman Bird, Katie McVeigh, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. 
Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 15 of Out of All Doors. Thank you.